Since 1774, Newark Academy has contributed to the world, engaged individuals instilled with a passion for learning, a standard of excellence, and a generosity of spirit. Scattered throughout the world today, NA alumni continue to exhibit these traits and more and have such incredible stories to share. You'll hear these stories on this podcast, NA Voices. Here's your host, Head of School, Don Austin. Hello, everybody. Um, I'm very happy to welcome for our second podcast, New Jersey native Dr. Robert Pensack. He's a physician, psychiatrist, former general practitioner, emergency room doctor, and a longtime survivor of a cardiac transplant. He authored a critically acclaimed memoir entitled Raising Lazarus, which was originally published by Putnam in 1994 and shares a powerful spiritual and existential message of hope. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Pensack to NA Voices today. Bob, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, I should sure. also mention Bob's class of 1968, right? From Newark Academy. Yes. Yeah. Correct. So before we get into this really incredible story, can you talk to me a little bit about your Newark Academy experience? How did you end up here? Were there any faculty members who were particularly influential uh, as you look back on that time? Sure. I had been going to the public schools uh, in Livingston, uh, where I had grown up. And uh, at the time, Newark Academy was still in Newark, hadn't made the move yet to Livingston. Uh, and my parents and I just discussed going there because of its academic reputation. Uh, and uh, I was interested. And so I went to Newark Academy uh, beginning in eighth grade. and. Uh, Newark Academy at that time, I believe, was on First Street in Newark, uh, right near Barringer High School. Uh, and uh, I started in eighth grade. And the very next year is when Newark Academy moved to Livingston. Uh, so I was only in Newark for one year. And then I remained at Newark Academy until I graduated high school in 1968. And were you, uh, were there any sort of teachers or um classmates that were particularly influential in those as you look back? Uh, yes. Um, I played high school basketball and Bob Hendrickson was very uh, influential. Mm -hmm. At that time, he, he coached uh, most of the sports at Newark Academy. <laughs> right. at that time. Right. Uh, and he and I were very close. And he, he uh, I, I wouldn't say he was a father figure, but he was uh, more like an uncle figure to me. Uh, yeah. We talked we talked a lot about, you know, issues in my life. Uh, he was sort of like a, a counselor to a lot of a lot of his athletes, and yeah. so I got very close to Bob, and um, we both loved basketball, and we spoke a lot about basketball. But we also spoke about other facets of life, and I'd say more than anyone else, I, I was uh, close to Bob. Um, okay, but there were many other teachers that I got close to. And so after Newark Academy, you ended up going to the University of Colorado, which uh, I gather you must really enjoy because you're still there. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful state. Um, what was what was it that drew you to Colorado and, and what's kept you there? Most of the students who graduated not only from Newark Academy, but uh, the high schools in, in the East in general stayed in the East. Um, once in a while, you'd meet somebody at that time that 
went west uh, to go to college. And uh, I had never been uh, west, and I loved skiing. I grew up uh, skiing in Vermont and New York State. Uh, my father took the family, and um, I was uh, kind of in love with skiing at that time. And I thought, I don't want to stay in the East Coast. I want to see the rest of the country. Um, and it was really that reason more than anything else that sure. I chose to go to Colorado. I, I wanted to go west, and I also wanted to go where there was uh, world-famous skiing. And yeah. uh, when I ordered the, the brochure from the University of Colorado Boulder, uh, you know, there were pictures all through the brochure of Aspen, Colorado, and Vail, Colorado, and... Once I saw those, I said, that's where I'm going to college. So <laughs> that sounds like the way a, a 17 or 18 year old might think if, if he was a real skiing lover right. of skiing. Well, your story is an incredible one. And in many ways, it's it's a miracle that we're here to, today talking. Uh, 28 years ago, you had a heart transplant. Correct. And your story, as I mentioned, became a, an acclaimed New York Times reviewed memoir. Um, and it chronicles your struggle to stay alive with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, Correct. Can you sort of briefly explain this genetic disease to our listeners and talk a little bit about how you first found out that you had it? Um, sure, sure. The disease uh, that runs in my family uh, that caused my mother's death in 1955 when she was 31 and that my brother and I inherited is called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And certain uh, uh, patients who have it have a specific type of it called hokum or hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. Um, so I think the first thing to say about it is um, it's not a rare disease. Uh, we used to think it was. In fact, I spent most of my life uh, hearing that it was a rare disease. But we now know that one in 500 people have this disease, which is uh, a very common disease, a lot more common than most of the diseases that you're, we're all well aware of. Um, and uh, one of the reasons people don't know about it is because they've changed the name so many times. Uh, but the name now is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, HCM, or HOCM, H-O-C-M. It's the leading cause of sudden death in undiagnosed young athletes. So when you hear about a high school athlete that dropped dead and they never knew there was anything wrong with them, about 70% of those people have this disease um, and never knew it because you can have this disease and never get sick. And why do we see it more in athletes? Because exertional, severe competitive exertion seems to make people more prone to cardiac arrhythmias who have this disease that can end their life. So that's, that's why. So it's a disease uh, of the muscle of the heart. And um, in my family, no one died suddenly, but we have three people, my mother, my brother and I, who have had very, very life-threatening disease in slowly progressive deterioration. I'm interested in kind of your personal um, story and sort of how you first I mean, obviously, your mother died in front of you at a very young age, unexpectedly, and uh, and subsequently, you both you and your brother um, came to understand that you had this this disease. Um, can you talk a little bit about the first symptoms and how how that 
you know, not only how it happened, but how you felt going through that. Sure. Just briefly. So my mother died when I was four and uh, my brother, uh, Richard, um, was six or seven. Um, And it was 1955 and they really knew nothing about this disease. Um, as I said, it was described for the first time, maybe in 55, I might've said 57, but it was described in England and nobody knew about it really other than the guy who described it. Uh, and, uh, they thought she had some sort of strange rheumatic, uh, valve heart disease. They really didn't know what was wrong with her, but she died, uh, from that. Actually, I didn't see her die. I saw her actually the day she died in the hospital. Um, mm. and, and that night she died. Um, and she did not die a sudden death. She died a gradual a deteriorating heart disease. When my brother, who was two years or two, almost three years older than me, uh, was in ninth grade, uh, he was a basketball player and he started to have dizzy spells when he played basketball. So those were the first symptoms. It's often the first symptoms that people get. Um, and the lightheaded spells uh, led to us going to our family internist. And the internist had just read an article in the New England Journal of Medicine that was written by a man who's still alive. Uh, he's about 90 now, but he's the preeminent cardiologist probably of the last 60 years in this country, maybe in the world. Um, his name is Eugene, Dr. Eugene Brownwald. And at the time, uh, he was the head of the Department of Cardiology at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. And the National Institutes of Health uh, is where Dr. Fauci (laughs) is the head of infectious disease. Um, It's the largest uh, research uh, facility in the United States and it's, it's government run, totally government run. And our internist had read about this article and he, actually sent my brother and I both down there. And the reason he did it was we had this history where our mother died of this mysterious heart disease and nobody really knew what it was. Given that history and the fact that my brother was getting symptoms, I was in, uh, I believe, sixth or seventh grade. We ended up in NIH. And it turned out that Dr. Brownwald was doing... uh, almost exclusively at that time, research on this disease, which they had named IHSS. And um, so we ended up seeing him and they catheterized us. You know, they they had us go on under interventional cardiology when we were, um, like I said, my brother was about 15. I I think I was about 13. And, my brother was diagnosed with this disease at that time. He had a thickened septum and he had pressures that were abnormal and he was told to stop playing competitive sports. Um, I was not diagnosed with the disease at the time, but they said they wanted to keep following me because often it doesn't show up, but does show up later. It can even show up for the first time as an adult, but usually it shows up in teenagers for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, sure enough, when I 
was probably in ninth or tenth grade, pretty much where he where he was when he was diagnosed in ninth grade, playing basketball on the Newark Academy team uh, for Bob Hendrickson. I started to get very short of breath playing full court basketball. The first time I knew that the disease was really getting dangerous to me was Thanksgiving of my freshman year of college. Uh, I went back uh, for the holiday and I met all my Newark Academy friends and we had a, there were a lot of us, I would say, I don't know, maybe 12 of us playing touch football. Uh, And we had a touch football game on uh, your football field. Uh, The same one, I assume, that's still there. Uh, field, sure. And uh, towards the end of the game, uh, I was playing quarterback, and I I threw a long pass, and uh, we had been behind. Actually, I remember now, we were actually playing some players from this – from your football team who were actually on your football team. They were seniors and juniors in high school. And we were like the old farts who were college students. And we were losing by, you know, less than a touchdown. And it was toward the end of the game. I threw a pass and uh, a very tall North Academy graduate uh, caught the pass, scored a touchdown. We won. And I started, running down the field. We were all screaming and, and yelling. And and while I was running full speed, I passed out for the very first time. Mm-hmm. And um, and I didn't feel right. And they took me to uh, uh, the hospital and I ended up that, that was my first bout of atrial fibrillation. And uh, returned to college, went through the uh, University of Colorado and did pre-med. Um, it's always been at least during my lifetime, it's always been incredibly difficult to get into medical school. I think I had about a, a 3.5 grade point in college and I, I didn't get in. And um, at the time I didn't want to go uh, overseas to a foreign medical school. I wanted to try to get in. Uh, and I went to the University of Colorado Medical School, which is located in Denver, about 40 minutes from Boulder. And I had my resume and I went around the medical center, dropping into all the different departments, uh, like the Department of Surgery, uh, the Department of uh, uh, Transplantation, the Department of Physiology, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the places that I stopped and and gave my resume to was uh, the liver transplant office. And the chairman of the department was a a guy named Dr. Thomas Starzl. it ended up, this is just coincidence, it ended up that uh, he was the father of transplantation. Uh, he did the first successful liver transplant in the world in 1967 at the University of Colorado. And he ended up later in his career, he left Colorado uh, while I was in medical school there to go to the University of Pittsburgh which at that time was not a good medical center, nor was it a good medical school. And he built the University of Pittsburgh into the finest, largest transplant center in the world. Um, and he died two, year, two or three years ago. Um, but um, he developed all the immune suppressants that are still being used today for transplantation, all kinds mm-hmm. of transplantation. 
he developed a drug called cyclosporin. He, he developed a drug called Prograft, which is also called Tacrolimus. And these are the drugs that really made transplantation a viable treatment. Um, and he did that all really um, uh, at Pittsburgh after he left Colorado. Um, and so in, in any case, I dropped my resume off there and they told me to wait in the waiting area. And I was amazed, but about 15 minutes later, they said that Dr. Starzl will see you. And um, I went in, spoke to him, and he asked me about my resume. And I didn't speak to him about my heart disease. I never told him anything about that. And the next day I got a call from him and they were hiring me to work for him in clinical research and transplantation, which ended up saving my life and my brother's life. But I had, I wasn't looking for a job in transplantation. Um, so I worked for him in the next, over the next few years. And I actually ended up helping develop a drug, which is now called APGAM, but at that time was just called anti-lymphocyte globulin. And it was a drug that suppressed the immune system enough to allow transplantation patients to live without rejecting the organ. And just freaky as it is, I was one of the people that worked on developing that drug. And I was, yeah, and, and I, was, I was only 22 at the time. So, it, you know, in retrospect, it, it truly was a miracle that I got that job. And it was also fortuitous. And Let me ask you, uh, before you go further, I'm curious about your decision to pursue medicine. Was that related to your condition or was it something that you had, that you had consulted along? Well, I think that when I was growing up, I didn't have enough psychological insight and wherewithal to know that the answer to your question is yes, okay? Um, but I think it had to do with the fact that my mother died of this weird disease and that I and my brother inherited this disease. And I think that really put me on the road while I was still at Nurk Academy to wanting to be a doctor. Um, and I mean, I thought that the doctors at the NIH were the heroes of the world. And they probably are, okay? <laughs> at least they're the heroes, they're some of the heroes. Of the world. Right. And uh, once I was exposed to NIH and became a patient there, um, it became uh, clearer and clearer that that's what I wanted to do with my life. Phenomenal. Yeah, another element of your book that I found uh, fascinating was how you, you know, you describe uh, your operation, your own operation, and sort of what you live through, almost as if you're, you know, you're looking at yourself from the outside uh, with your yeah. medical understanding and your your kind of uh, sensitivity around, you know, rejection and all the other issues. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the actual surgery and sort of what you experienced leading into it and once it was completed. Sure, sure. So just briefly, before I talk about the transplant, one thing that happened when I was in medical school is I needed surgery for the original hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And what they do is they thin out the septum where it's too thick. So okay. there's more blood here. And I had that done also at the NIH. And I had it done during my second year of medical school. So I was 24 years old when I had open heart surgery. And um, uh, getting down the road, so to make a very long story short, uh, 
the disease progressed despite the surgery. It was not a curative surgery. It was a, right. a surgery that helped you not get dizzy and pass out. Uh, and I ended up needing a heart transplant. Two years before that, my brother needed a heart transplant. So my brother got a heart transplant two years before I did. So the transplant itself. So I knew a lot about transplantation, obviously, from what happened with my job with Dr. Starzl. Uh, and I stayed in touch with Dr. Starzl uh, really through the rest of his life until he passed a couple of years ago. Hmm. Um, so um, I was trying to decide what kind of doctor to be because I wanted to be a surgeon, but I wasn't strong enough. It, the hours and the grueling lifestyle of a cardiac surgeon was just too much for someone with my heart disease. So I liked psychiatry a lot, and I ended up going into psychiatry and being a psychiatrist where you don't have to stay up all night every night, just occasionally. <laughs> and uh, um, surgery itself um, was a nightmare that I lived through. Um, and um, a normal cardiac transplant, if everything goes well, lasts about four or five hours. Mine lasted 18 hours. Um, and the reason was everything that could go wrong went wrong, except that I survived. Um, uh, the first thing that happened was the heart came from Texas, which is pretty far uh, to bring a heart to a patient from Texas to, cardio, uh, to uh, Colorado or, descent, uh, or Denver. And the longer the period of time from when the heart is disconnected in the uh, donor, to when it's reconnected and started again in the recipient, uh, the worse for the heart. Uh, and you want it to be as short a, a period of time as possible. That's called the ischemic time, which means the amount of time the, the heart is not getting blood. Mm. Um, and um, so first of all, it had a very long ischemic time. It, it took too long to get the heart to Denver. Uh, and um, so that was one way that the heart was uh, compromised. Um, and it got stiff because of that. It, it, it got to have its own diastolic, if you will, non-compliance, just because it, it was not an ideal amount of time between, uh, you know, during the ischemic period. Um, and then when they put the heart in, it had swelled so much during that long ischemic time, they couldn't close my chest. Uh, and... Um, they didn't know if I was going to live or die. I mean, they, they, they went out and told my wife that there were very severe complications and they didn't, things weren't going well is what they told me. Um, and they spent hours and hours just waiting for the heart to become smaller, you know, just for some of the swelling to go down by icing the heart. Um, and it was already in my chest and connected but they couldn't close me. Um, and during that period of time, I also started to hemorrhage. So they had to give me huge amounts of blood. And then my kidneys shut down. So I went into acute renal failure. And my heart surgeon, who's a guy by the name of Dr. David Campbell, uh, he just wouldn't let me die. You know, um, he just, he wouldn't give up. And, um, we got a nephrologist to treat my kidney failure, and I started to make urine again. And 
Dave started to literally excavate the inside of my chest wall to make more room for this big heart. And the heart was big in the first place. It was too big for me. And during this surgery, here's the way we did this. I wrote this book with an incredible writer by the name of uh, Dwight Arnon Williams. And he was a friend of mine. Believe it or not, after my heart transplant, I wanted to live in a ski town and ski again. And when I was all done with my residency in psychiatry, I moved to Steamboat Springs where I ended up raising my kids. And um, I would like uh, start work early in the morning and quit work at two in the afternoon and go skiing every day uh, and see patients. And I even saw patients on the weekends because I didn't want to ski on the weekends. I wanted to ski during the week when there weren't a lot of people there. Um, so in any case, I met a writer in Steamboat Springs who wrote for the local paper named Dwight Williams. He actually came up to our home and interviewed me for the local paper because I was waiting for a heart transplant. And you end up waiting a long time. Some people are lucky and don't, but I, I waited for, I don't know, between one and two years. Um, and while you're waiting, you're getting sicker. Um, anyway, Dwight interviewed me and I told him I always wanted to write a book about my family's story with this disease and my story with this disease. And I wanted to write it with someone who was a better writer than I am. I'm a good writer, but I'm not an exceptional writer. And when he wrote his article, I thought it was pretty exceptional. And I asked him about it. And I told him that I always wanted to write a book about this with someone. And he said that he had gone to the Iowa, he had gone to the University of Colorado Boulder, but he had also gone to the Iowa Writing Institute, which is probably the finest writing institute in the United States. And uh, he went there after college. And, you know, Kurt Vonnegut was there and one of the professors there. And um, he started to show me his writings. And one of them had actually won a uh, award at the Iowa Writing Institute for the best short story. And I was thoroughly impressed. And I asked him if he wanted to do it with me and he did. And I, after I got to know Dwight, uh, we started to write the book and we wrote all of the story that I've told you today and more, but obviously I was still waiting for the final chapter, the, the heart transplant. And I sent Dwight to meet Dr. Campbell, who I had gotten to be close to before my transplant, who was going to do my transplant. And Dr. Campbell allowed Dwight into the operating room with me, and we watched open heart surgery. We didn't watch a transplant, but we watched open heart surgery. And I taught Dwight, um, because at the time I was already 42. I, you know, I, I had been a doctor since I was uh, in my 30s. Um, and I knew everything about the heart and I taught Dwight about the heart. The reason being, I decided with Dwight that we wanted to tell the story of what happened during the transplant as if I was outside my own body narrating it. So Dwight wrote that part after he was schooled in cardiology. Um, okay. and that's how it was done. So Dwight knew everything he needed to know to describe what was happening. Uh, and Dave helped him. You know, Dave Campbell helped him. And when the transplant actually occurred uh, and all these complications occurred, Dwight could write about them with the help of Dr. Campbell, who still communicated during the surgery. Um, 
And he was in the OR the entire 18 hours. And that's how that part of the book came to be. And I think it's, I think it's the best part of the book. It certainly has the, uh, the most uh, tension in it. And uh, it's, it's a real, it's a thriller, if you will. <laughs> it definitely is. Hey, I wanted to ask you about sort of comparing, you know, your experience waiting for and then receiving a, a transplant uh, uh, with your brothers and your description of your brother and how he handled this situation, which I, I can only imagine how, how stressful and traumatic you know, it is, and you do a nice job of laying that out. But, but in the, in your brother's case, you know, he's his one of his responses is really to turn to his faith and to his you know Judaism and really embrace that. And at certain points, he encourages you to do the same, which you, uh, at least in the account of the book, choose not to do. But I guess my question to you is around, you know, where do you derive, where did you derive and do you continue to derive your, your inner strength, the sort of spiritual, um, you know, force to, to deal with these sort of life-threatening issues, these existential challenges, uh, and, and also the uncertainty that you, you know, that you probably still live with. I mean, even though it's been 28 years, you seem like a vibrant guy, you ski, you've had a great career, you've raised families, but it, it is a sort of sword of Damocles, right? That's always hanging over you, right? And perhaps less now than before you got your transplant. But so my question is really around your sort of spiritual strength, you know, your faith, you, how, how do you manage that? We obviously, as kids, went through a lot of trauma. Um, and we had a lot of psychological repercussions from that trauma. Uh, no one called uh, results of trauma back then post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, we just thought we were nervous wrecks after a while. Um, but we had PTSD, both of us. And as my br brother grew up and became a young man, uh, he became very religious. He became an Orthodox Jew, which we never were. Um, and he even uh, moved to Israel thinking he would stay there. Um, and he got too sick and left Israel and came back home to the United States. But he became an Orthodox Jew, a modern Orthodox Jew for the rest of his life. I would use the word fanatic uh, because it caused a, a lot of uh, friction between him and me and him and other people and him and uh, family members. But he really did become a fanatic. And uh, I really did the opposite. I turned to science. To me, it was all about science. And every time I got sick, I would be sick for a few years before the medical science would catch up to where I was in terms of my illness and save my life. And this happened over and over again. Um, I would be watching and I would get to know all the famous doctors that were working in various uh, parts of medicine that related to some of my medical problems. I got to know them on a first name basis. I got, because I was a doctor, they gave me their cell phones. And I got to be friendly with lots of them, uh, from Norman Shumway at Stanford, who really perfected heart, heart transplantation, who's also passed and no longer alive, to um, Dr. Victor Parsonette at the North Beth Israel Hospital, who was really uh, the most sophisticated pacemaker developer, uh, probably in the history of the world at that time, because I needed pacemakers. And I needed fancy pacemakers. So really, where my brother went to religion and God, I went to science, and I believed in science. Now, 
What about spirituality? I had a lot of spirituality. Um, but my spirituality had to do with um, thinking about the meaning of life. It, it was more like Kierkegaard. It was, it was existential searching. And I do that to this day. I've never stopped doing that. And I think I started doing it, to be honest, when I was a little boy after my mother died. I didn't know that I was doing that. Right. But, um, you know, I've always been um, either very funny because my biggest defense mechanism was humor. And I would get really wild and crazy as a high school student, as a college student, and as an adult doctor. But I also had this private world that no one knew about except me and my wife that was uh, very serious, very philosophical. And um, I think I'm still that way. Very interesting. Um, now, what about your, you know, you're, you've been in Colorado for a long time. You raised a family. And how, what are some of the lessons and, and that you've passed on to your children and how does, you know, in terms of your own condition and its effect on you, what have you passed on to them? And, and I also want to know, have, have either of them got sure. heart, the same disease that you have? Right. So a couple of years after I had my transplant, they had developed already the uh, DNA technology uh, to start to identify the mutations that cause this disease. And they identified the one in me before I had my transplant, actually. So we knew what it was. So that same mutation was in my brother's family and his kids. Yeah. Uh, and so first, in answer to that question, my brother's has two sons and they both have the mutation. Uh, one of them now is in his young 40s and the other is around 38 or 39. Um, and they both have the mutation. They both have the disease, but never... Neither one of them has ever gotten severely ill, but they did get ill enough to have to stop playing competitive sports when they were in high school. And my nephew was, uh, uh, the older nephew was a phenomenal high school basketball player, uh, but he had to give that up. And uh, so they, they see cardiologists and they, um, they take medication. Um, my kids, um, my son, never got the mutation, which means he can never get the disease. So we knew by the time, when I had my transplant, my daughter Miriam was 18 months old and my son was three and a half years old. And it was a very heavy thing to have kids because, I mean, I thought about should I or should I not have kids for a decade? Um, but as I saw the technology and medicine getting better and better, I felt better about it. I also met endless numbers of HCM patients that never really got that sick and lived normal lives. And that's because of the variable penetrance. Um, and I, uh, I took a chance and um, I did it with um, my cardiologists giving me their feelings about it. And um, you know, I, I was condemned for it by a magazine, which is still out today, called Psychology Today. They wrote a big article on, on me and my brother, which was very critical of us deciding to go ahead and have children. Um, but in any case, my daughter got the mutation, and we knew it within six months after my transplant. 
The good part is Miriam's 29, Max is 31. Miriam, although she's genetically positive, she's still not diagnosable by their own standards. Um, and um, she sees them only a few, every few years. And she went off the medication about, oh, probably by the time she was 18, 10 years ago. She doesn't take any medication. And she has a normal life, really. The only thing that she still has is she doesn't have the endurance of everyone else. Um, Interesting. And knock on wood, it'll stay that way. You know? In terms of your, your, you know, you're probably one of the... Uh, the leading experts who's not himself a cardiologist on this, on this condition. Um, and, and I guess I'm interested in sort of how you see the future for, for patients like you, obviously your, your daughter is an example of somebody who's done, done well. And they have, um, I mean, ha do you think that this is a disease that's more or less controllable now? And, um, and I guess, so that's the sort of the specific question. I also am interested in asking you to reflect a little bit on the practice of medicine and I know we're kind of out of time here, but but just sort of what how you see that going forward uh, with all the changes that we've, you know. Right. So first of all, <clears throat> I've given lectures <clears throat> since my book came out on the role of hope in uh, medical illness, in life-threatening medical illness. And the gist of, of, of the lecture is really what I've said, which is that medical progress um, continues to do miraculous things. And my feeling in terms of the second part of your question is that it's going to continue to progress and it's going to eventually uh, keep people alive too long. It may do that already. Um, right. Um, but you got to remember when people criticize us for keeping people alive till very old ages, they're not thinking about all the young people that get terrible illnesses. Um, and I was one of them. Right. Um, and I'm now 70. I got my transplant when I was 42. I had my first heart cath when I was 14. I've been a productive physician in, in this society. Right. You know, there are those people that argue, let these people die. And, um, I don't know how the finances would compare, but I think I, um, I think I saved this country more money by being a physician than I would have cost them if they let me die. Um, and so my overall feeling is um, I see medicine doing all kinds of miraculous things. One of the things we haven't heard much about recently, but did about 10 years ago, is embryonic stem cells. Um, you're going to hear more about it in the future because my belief is that embryonic stem cells are going to be able to grow organs. You're going to be able to grow hearts. They're already doing it in labs. Um, they're going to be able to grow livers. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And although the, although the progress in embryonic stem cells has not been very good recently, I think it will be good eventually. Hmm. Um, and um, so that's, that's one aspect. The other aspect is that all these different parts of biology, meaning clinical medicine, um, hardcore bench science with molecular biology, cellular biology, stem cell biology. They're all becoming one integrated field. It's like they used to be separate. They're not anymore. Because what's, what, what's happening with this disease is they've already been able to grow HCM cells in the lab and remove the mutations. 
Um, They they did that. uh, It was the lead article in Science Magazine about five years ago. Um, So not only did they do it in the lab, but they they now have the in vitro fertilization techniques and have for a while that you can do the same thing in a a fertility clinic. So my daughter can go through um, fertilization with her own eggs and whoever she marries to have children in a laboratory, just like people who have infertility problems. And then they're able to identify the cells that have this mutation that causes this disease, remove those cells, put the normal cells back into her uterus, and she's guaranteed to have a normal baby, at least free of HCM. So that technology is already here. That's miraculous. Um, Amazing. Yeah. Right. Um, Because she asked me a lot about it and I followed that. uh, um, It's already here. Unfortunately, it's not covered by insurance. It's very expensive. Just like infertility treatment is very expensive because that's not covered by insurance. But um, it's already here. So, you know, my answer, I think, is pretty clear about what I think medicine is going to do. Assuming we live in a society that wants it to progress and that that you know gives the money to the scientists so that they can continue to be researchers um so wow well that's a an incredibly uh, hopeful way to conclude our conversation and and i have to say your you know your story is one that does give a lot of hope to uh to anybody who's listening and uh I, I wish you uh, all the best. I assume. So you're still, are you still practicing medicine? I am. I'm, uh, I'm 70 years old and I, I practice psychiatry full time. And actually I specialize now. Uh, there, there were many periods of my life that I practiced privately, but I, I work actually at an, an eating disorder clinic and we treat anorexia nervosa and bulimia and other forms of eating disorders. And I do that full time. So That's wonderful. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your day and, and sharing some of your thoughts. And uh, best of luck. And maybe if I uh, get out to Colorado, I'll look you up next year. Oh, that would be we'll great. Maybe we'll together. Okay. Okay. I love that. Okay. okay. Take care. Thank you for listening to NA Voices. If you have a story that you'd like to share, please email us at alumni at newarka.edu.